Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This week on the Mike Wise Show, we have reached the bubble ball finish line and we have two special guests to break down the Lakers heat series and do our best to make sense of everything both on and off the court. But first, Darlene, do your thing. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise-ass, and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? Thanks, Darlene. Now that the Lakers have secured banner number 17, I am pleased to welcome two special guests to the show. Dave Wall is a repeat offender. He was an NBA player, coach, and general manager, and has been around the NBA for 50 years. He's also a new member of the Pure Hoops media team. By the way, welcome, Dave. Thanks, um, Mike. Yeah, and his show, Dave's Front Office, will debut in the coming weeks. Since one Dave is never enough, we also welcome Coach Dave Miller, who covered the Lakers for many years on their regional TV network in Southern California and also was an assistant coach under Byron Scott in New Orleans. Dave also was on the staff at USC, Arizona State, and Eastern Kentucky. Welcome, Dave and Dave. Dave squared. It's a pleasure to be here without royalty. <laughs> oh, it, my, the pleasure's all mine. I, I I could talk all day about the championship that the one just won by the Lakers. Um, uh, before we get to LeBron James, and I know uh, Dave Miller, you covered this up close for many years, and you you're, you're very familiar with everything going on there. I think the biggest thing to me, and the most amazing thing to me, is like I remember being on the phone with shoot Jeannie Buss less than three years ago and her kind of telling me I don't know what's going to happen with us but look we, we we're going to go after LeBron James are you going after LeBron James yeah yeah but don't tell anybody and then I'm thinking well how's this going to work and this organization in my mind was in complete disarray um not only was she dealing with a a suit from her brothers over the ownership of the team Jeannie Buss was dealing with internal um, problems involving Magic Johnson, who either had fed up people or was fed up and resigned. And bottom line is LeBron doesn't make the playoffs. The Lakers don't go to the playoffs for the first time in 14 years. A year later, they win it all. Uh, that, to me, is talk about fixing things quickly. Uh, the, I guess winning really is the great deodorant. Well, quite frankly, it was a dumpster fire. And, and you mentioned covering the Lakers on Time Warner Cable, which was comparable back east to the Yes Channel in terms of just all-out coverage. And, you know, I had two years on the radio with ESPN, so I did experience 2010. So I went from a euphoric high of covering the Lakers, they win a championship, and then all of a sudden I get the TV gig, and for the next four years, it's the worst Laker teams, you know, that I could re ever remember watching. And, you know, Worthy was on two nights a week to cover games. I had to be on six nights a week. So can you imagine trying, you know, to spin that thing 
But I, I give a lot of credit to Jeannie. You know, she was put in a very tough, difficult situation uh, when her father passed. You mentioned, you know, her eventually finding her, her brother. But what I thought Jeannie did to get this ship back sailing was similar to what her father did. She started to hire people. And, you know, Dr. Buss hired you, he gave you responsibilities, and then he let you do your thing, you know. And don't, don't get me wrong, and Dave can speak to this, when it was a huge decision, he stamped it. But it's like being on a coaching staff with a head coach and assistants. Everybody has their thoughts and their ideas, and then the head coach makes that final decision. So I really give a lot of credit to Jeannie. Uh, big props to Rob Polinka for what he was thrown into for the first time. And I think you also have to credit Magic Johnson. There were a lot of things going on behind the scenes, but he orchestrated LeBron coming. And then, you know, he made that exit, and it wasn't because of the way things were going that most, most of the fans could see. It was behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And he, quite frankly, had enough of that. But, you know, big props to the Los Angeles Lakers. And it shows you what star power does. And Dave, you know, Dave won a championship there. He knows what star power is. And you bring LeBron, he's the Pied Piper. He gets people to buy in. He gets to trust you. And we see the end results. And this was a difficult championship to win when you look at everything in 2020. Well, this is what I was going to bring David. Uh, he he uh, made me think twice about the notion that, you know, yes, this should have an asterisk to it this season. It might be one of the greatest accomplishments for any, for any team, any organization, to shut down their entire organization, to to rely on players either getting training off-site or something, and then not even knowing if they're going to come back, and then to essentially – you know, say, uh, you know, goodbye to family and friends for a long time in that bubble. Um, it, it, I, I look at the, you know, the, the, there was a mental psychological aspect to it. It, it. it might be one of the greatest championships ever won. And Dave Wall, I'm going to steal that from you now. Yeah, I, I agree, Mike. I, you know, we had that discussion and I still really feel that way. I, I still think the the teams that were the mentally toughest that could get by all the the little distractions in the bubble. Oh, my food got there cold, or you know, I, I I couldn't play golf today, or there's nobody in the stands, or all those little things. Some players will give into those. Some staffs probably had a hard time keeping their team just you know focused in that direction. And I thought the teams that would go the furthest were going to be those mentally tough teams. And I, I thought Dave brought up a lot of good points. When when you're in an organization, and it doesn't matter whether you're a player, coach general manager or owner, you hate drama because drama is a distraction. And I thought this was the first year in a while that the Lakers really had no internally inflicted drama. You know, obviously Kobe's passing and everything, but uh, if you think about it, you just never heard a lot of bad things coming out or dissension coming out. And I just thought all the pieces fell into place. And I really agree with Dave too. I thought Rob Polinka deserves a great deal of credit for the job he did. But I, I thought the drama-free year was terrific for them. It, uh, I was thinking, as you said, Kobe Bryant, um, Jack McCallum joined me last week and he was, he was great in putting everything in perspective that you know David Stern died on the first day of the year and, and then the tragedy with Kobe and, of course, the pandemic and then the racial reckoning in this country that really uh, spilled over to the NBA where 80% uh, of the workforce is still African-American. And I'm looking, boy, the NBA was on the front. The, 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 the country shut down after Rudy Gobert got 
that had a positive test where the NBA was just essentially like a, a prism into everything that happened bad um, in, in this country this year. And man, for them to do it in a year in which Kobe Bryant tragically died, it's got to be a, and you probably got to know him a little bit, Dave uh, Miller, when you were covering. Um, I, I can't, I, I still can't even fathom that it happened, to be honest. It's, well, it's one of those things where I want to wake up and go, wow, that, of all people that you told me they died, he died in a helicopter crash, I would have taken 340 NBA players before him. Well, what's crazy, and we all have East Coast ties, I met him at the ABC boot camp that used to be at Fairleigh Dickinson University. Yep. Who would know he ends up a Laker and I end up, you know, coaching at USC and Jim Clemens, uh, the the former Chicago assistant and then Phil's assistant here. Yes. He became like a second father to me. So when I was a college assistant, I would go to the Laker practice and I'd sit there and, you know, we all beg, borrow and steal. So I, I would stay late and Jim would be working out with Kobe. So we really nurtured a relationship and, uh, it really hit us hard. And then I got the TV job and everyone in LA, the media thought every time Kobe would call me over after practice, we were talking about the game or the game plan. And I tell this all the time now, he'd ask me about my daughter or my sons and I'd ask him about his daughter, you know, and I never told the media, you know, they'd come back and they'd say, what did he tell you? I go, I can't tell you. You know, <laughs> you know he was asking great. my son's playing college football. My other son was a, a college assistant. So, the Black Mamba had a huge imprint on me in terms of work ethic. And, you know, I'm, I'm much older than him, but he really left a mark on this team. And I really want to give credit to the organization, but more importantly, LeBron and AD and Rondo, the leaders of this team, to have that Mamba mentality, because it's easy to say and it's mm -hmm. hard to do. And I thought that they really tried to have that Mamba mentality through the duration of the season, the shutdown, and then ultimately the World Championship. Dave Wall, uh, the, uh, the Kobe's only been there, I'm sorry, LeBron has been there only two years. And yet, along with George Mikan, Will Chamberlain, Jerry West, Kareem, Magic, Worthy, Kobe, Shaq, I guess got to put Paul, Paul Gasol in there. And of course, Kobe, he, doesn't he have to be an all-time Laker now? He's won a title and, and followed in the footsteps of all the, these future, these Hall of Famers and these great players. He's got to be an all-time yeah, and I think you get into the definition of how many can be in the all-time bracket. You know, <laughs> is it five? Is it six? Is it eight? Because they have so many great players, and, and LeBron's got to be in there somewhere, whether you want to say he's in the top three, in the top two, the top five. Um, I think you're just splitting hairs. I mean, uh, I, what, I, what I was so impressed with this year, guy's 36, and he's adopted a lot of the same things Kobe and Michael and some of the other greats have about taking care of their body to the utmost, becoming in great shape. Anything that's detrimental to their body, they've given up, whether it's some kind of food or some kind of drink or not getting enough sleep or I need more oxygen or whatever. And you watched him in this series, and there were times when he was driving to the hoop he looked like he was driving against the CYO team. And I don't mean any disparagement to the, to the Miami Heat. It was just this 6'8", 6'9", 260 pound machine. And he actually reminded me, having spent three years with, with Magic, when you watch some of the old fast breaks with Magic, when they were out in transition tonight even, you know, Magic was 6'8", 240. He was probably like 20 pounds less or, or more. 
but it's like there's a truck coming at 70 miles an hour at you defensively, and you don't know whether to try and stop it. He's going to pass. So the fact that he just looked in better shape than almost anybody else on the floor at 36, just a testament to his work ethic. For, for both you guys, like, I hate to do the Michael LeBron thing because I feel like it's, it's the next Superman versus Mighty Mouse uh, sports comparison, and, and whoever we take – it demeans the other guy in a way that, that it shouldn't be. But but if you had to start a team today, if you had to start a team, which player in NBA history are you are you taking number one? Well, I think I, I would go with LeBron James, even though I think Michael Jordan is the GOAT. Okay, you, you go to six finals, and again, I'm not a big stat guy, but I know Jordan never lost in the finals. Okay, and I think it was six. So until somebody surpasses that, you know, I, I think Jordan is the GOAT. And, and I also would say this, David, Mike, it's generational. Remember, mm-hmm. you know, you can go back, I mean, and, and if Bruce Bernstein was on here, it'd be Bill Russell because he's a great Celtic fan. And then, you know, you look at Kareem with the 38,387 points. But what I think LeBron is, Dave, I think he is the best all-round player that I've ever seen. And, and, and trust me, Dave Wall will forget more basketball than most mm-hmm. of us will know with all, you know, as a player mm-hmm. in college, a player in the NBA, yeah. and what he's done in the NBA. But for me, LeBron is the He's just the best overall player. He can play one through five. And like Dave was alluding to, I've always said this on air covering him. He's a Mack truck going down the Schuylkill Expressway. You know, it's like, what are you going to do? You, you, who's going to take a charge on him, right? Uh, who's going to get out of the way? Most people. So I go with him because he can play one through five and he can guard one through five. Yeah, I would, I would uh, agree with Dave because I think when you look at Mac, Michael, maybe on one end, I thought Michael was more of a scorer. Uh, you look at somebody like Magic on the other edge of the coin, and Magic was more of a passer. He could score sometimes. I thought LeBron fits into that in-between where he can impact a game with both of those things consistently. And then, like, like Dave said, you've got to talk about the era. Are we talking about when there were no threes? Are we talking about yeah. when there were three-point? You know, it makes a little difference. We're talking about when you could beat up guys and there were no flagrant fouls. And we saw, you know, Mikhail's take down a Rambus. And that was, you know, we talking about those eras. But I, no I, harm, no foul, no, no ambulance. Harm, no foul, nothing. You know, <laughs> the guy got up off the floor. How bad could it have been? You know, and but I, I think you've got to look at him for his achievements, what he's still doing at 36. And he may have more championships in front of him. And, and I think he's just the perfect creation of a guy who can impact the game in so many ways. I, I Look, I covered Michael during his – I guess I covered them the last three championships. I covered that 55-point game at Madison Square Garden. It was one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my life in person. And I, I still – I'll always say that Michael is the most scintillating, like – incredible surreal player I ever covered and part of it is because his size 66 is is large but he wasn't huge um, in the way that LeBron is LeBron's Le- LeBron he's a he's a beer truck with a broken parking brake when he gets rumbling it's scary and um, I almost feel like you know it'd probably get me in trouble but like I almost feel like the, the whole uh, ethos of the hyper masculine black guy hurts him in some ways because he's not as graceful when he goes toward the rim. He probably, LeBron, God bless him, he probably looked 30 when he was 18. And he's just like this guy that's just a lot bigger. And Michael was more graceful. 
And I almost feel like in that argument, he gets hurt because he's so he, he's so much bigger and so much stronger. And I don't think he should. I don't think I don't think the fact that he's this guy that's stronger and bigger should have anything to do with the fact that he's also still one of the most skilled. He's, he was a better passer than Michael. Well, I always thought this when I did a scouting report. I'd say coming down the floor in transition, and, and Dave knows this, every coach knows it, you can't let any player get ahead of steam. But it looked like it was Carl Malone coming at you, yet he had guard skills, you know. And, yeah. and you talk about the passing. I mean, just the other night when everyone, you know, crucified him because he didn't take the shot and he had three guys on him and he was underneath the basket. What I've, I've come to appreciate with LeBron now in Los Angeles is that he plays the right way. And I've heard him speak enough, whether it's on TV or whether it's to a group of kids, play the right way. And that's what I appreciate about him. And, you know, there was a time when he started out like all players, Dave, in this league. I watched him early on. I remember going to a Clipper Cavalier game. And I'm like, this guy doesn't have killer instinct. You know, he was just messing around. He was a kid from Akron. And then all of a sudden you figure out and you surround yourself with quality people that have your best interests and you start winning. That's when I thought he became a killer, you know, an assassin like a Kobe, like a Jordan. You know, we, we talk about these guys that, you know, love to win and hate to lose. LeBron developed into that. Um, but, yeah, you're right. He came out to play in Pauley Pavilion, and I helped host his team, and they played Dominguez. Oh, I remember this there. game. It was against Sebastian Telfar's team. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and so we, uh, we went to dinner with his team over at Lowry's on La Cienega. And I actually have a picture of my two sons that come up to about his waist, and it's the young LeBron. Um, but even then he looked old. But he reminded me a lot of Shea Cotton, who's a kid out of Long Beach that played mm -hmm. a little bit of college and never made it. But if you remember in eighth grade, Shea Cotton was on Sports Illustrated, in Sports Illustrated. Yeah. You know, he was LeBron before there was a LeBron. But, yeah, I think people take for granted when they look at him, and he's always looked older, he's always been bigger. Because uh, Michael looked like a kid for a long time. I, I, go I ahead, Dave. Other, I'm sorry. Dave I think Wall. the other thing, Mike, sometimes is the the fans and even some people who are you know around the periphery of the game, you don't realize the pressure on the elite elite players to perform at that level every night. You know, you'll see other guys who maybe are a level or two below have a couple good games and then they kind of come back to the mean. The mean for LeBron and Mike and all those guys is so much higher to come back to. And every night you're expected to go out, you're expected to perform at a level that's so above almost every other player. You're supposed to be the guy that carries your team, puts your team on your back. There's an enormous amount of pressure that can be debilitating to a lot of guys over the years. And yet you see the LeBrons and it doesn't seem to wear on them. I mean, he comes through with these performances and yeah, he'll have a bad game once in a while, but you can almost kind of count those on your, on your hand. I also like the, the whole thing about, and look, Bruce Bernstein will tell you, I, I probably go harder to my left than Michael Moore. But, but I like the fact that irrespective of whether you like the Black Lives Matter on the court, irrespective of whether you thought the social, mess, social conscience message was too, too far removed, it shouldn't have been part of the game. And um, I like that LeBron James uh, put himself out there and when he first did it, I think when he, you know, donned a hoodie with Dwayne Wade in the Miami Heat and, and did a portrait in the wake of the Trayvon Martin killing, I, like, I, I was kind of like, wait a minute, what, what's this guy saying here? 
and now I look back on it, the guy really took a risk. And, and it really, to me, he's part of the renaissance of probably the pioneer as far as renaissance of social conscience among athletes go. And, um, you know, and whether you think it's right, wrong, or, you know, I, I'm sure we don't think he should just shut up and dribble, and he sure has it. No, I, I would, oh, go ahead, but, Dave. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, uh, what usually happens, the guy who steps out first gets lost. You know, he steps out, he gets crucified by the people who don't want to change anything, who want to put him out front and just take shots at him. And you can look, uh, I remember as a kid watching Tommy Smith and John Carlos raise their hands in Mexico City with the gloves on. You know, nobody knew what that was about at that <laughs> point. And you look at everybody from Kurt Flood in baseball as one of the first free agents. Uh, Colin Kaepernick is one of our most recent ones. You know, and for LeBron to, to speak out, and I think as he's grown in his understanding of all the things and, and how they fit into life beyond basketball and apart from basketball, I'm really happy to see guys speak out. And the people, you know, when I hear shut up and dribble, I, I look at those people and go, no, you forget to shut up and dribble. You should be educating yourself. So you're speaking out. Yeah. And so I think it's a wonderful thing for athletes to be putting the time and effort, especially now when they had to go through all these things, they still wanted to get a message across. They still wanted to speak out. And it was really important to them. And, and I think it's, it's had an effect. Well, I, I think athletes that, practice what they preach. And what I liked about LeBron getting to see him and get a feel for him in Los Angeles, you, you know, he has the school that he started in, in Akron. So he's taking care of his roots. Yeah, promised. We all know his background growing up, you know, with just his mom in a, in a poor part of Akron. And for him to be able to show America, and it doesn't matter what color you are, to show that you care about your roots, where you came from, to show, I think he's a great dad. You know, I, I, in his interviews in Los Angeles on the local channel, I'll rewind it and I'll tape it and I'll tweet it out, you know, going back to playing the right way or doing the right thing or not just shutting up, standing up for the cause because a lot of guys in his position would rather not say anything because they're afraid it's gonna hurt them here, or it's gonna hurt them there. And like Dave said, I, I think that the power that they have in the, the abundance of social media out there. I, I became, I've become a bigger fan of LeBron James as a person right now than I think of him as the second best player to ever play this game. Yeah, I think that's where I'm biased a little. I really, having, when I was at the New York Times, having been out and covered him and uh, his, done a feature on him his last year in high school and gotten to know the people around him. And obviously his mom had so many demons and he was basically raised by a village in Akron, Frankie Carter and his family and all these people. And, and I just go, man, there is like, I'm doing this story on um, this guy in Oakland, uh, one of the greatest playground legends of all time, well, Demetrius Hook Mitchell. This guy, like, like you talk about the line between dysfunction and going one route and, 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 one, and another guy with the exact same background becomes arguably the greatest player of all time. Um, it's, it's, it's really is a rags to riches story. And I think after things like the decision and, and, uh, is, and is uh, putting his foot in his mouth about uh, China and Hong Kong last year, we forget where the guy came from sometimes. And I think that that part of me, that, that's the part of LeBron James, I, I really root for him as a person. And I was really happy for him when he won his first championship because I, he was one of those guys, and maybe it was because of his own upbringing. And he, he, 
unlike Michael Jordan and shoot Reggie Miller and so many other guys, he, he, he cared about what people thought about him. They didn't care in many ways, but Jordan probably did, but he didn't, but he was, he, he had that killer at, and, and when, when LeBron James realized that, that when somebody told me once, which is, which is, um, you know, it's not my job to, to worry about what other people think about me. It's my job to worry about what I think about me. When LeBron James started acting like that, and I think it was that after that 2011 meltdown against the Mavericks, and he realized that, you know, all of America hated him after the decision, and he was sort of the sore loser in the press conferences. I think he kind of realized that, you know, I'm playing a kid's game. I got to I gotta do this job. And he just became a different player and, uh, and a different caliber of champion. And a lot of it was psychological. He had all the physical tools. I, I don't know. I, I, I really root for him. And I hate it when people, you know, bring up Jordan. I, in fact, I hope Jordan at one point really, really says something, you know, like, like I love that LeBron, uh, I mean, Kobe Bryant, the night before he died, tweeted out, uh, you know, uh, that congratulations to LeBron James for passing me on the all-time score, you know, or on, on the scoring list, whatever it was. That was a big deal to him. I'd like to see Michael Jordan do that with LeBron. No, I love one of the things I love, and you kind of alluded to it, um, is I, I love when people, and it doesn't have to be LeBron, but we're since we're talking about sports and LeBron, is uh, that's called to me personal growth. You know, you'll hear a lot of people say, "Oh, I'm, I don't regret anything I ever did or said." Well, to me, then you haven't really taken the time to analyze something that you know you received a lot of criticism for. Not that you always have to accept criticism from everybody. But sometimes when you receive criticism that's worthwhile, constructive criticism, LeBron has shown that he's given it thought and he's realized, boy, I could have done that better or I could have done this better. And he's learned from that. And I think that gives you more maturity as a person. It blends in your experiences and makes you a little smarter along the way. And I think that's one of the things I've been really impressed with him is he hasn't just you know, kind of sloughed it off and, hey, I'm going to do what I, I'm going to do. And it, I, don't, I don't care about anybody's opinion. Yeah. And, and to piggyback onto that, I think he's got a great characteristic, as most people do and more in the world should, be happy for the success of others. Mm -hmm. You know, we say mm -hmm. that in coaches all the time. We say, you know, everybody yeah. wants to keep up with the neighbor and everyone wants to have a, a fancier car. Or, you know, Dave, where you and I live, everybody wants an elevator. I want steps. I, I, I remember the first time my kids had a play date in 1996, a kid at our house uh, said, uh, hey, you guys don't have an elevator. You know, I, I want to say, um, you know, this isn't Macy's uh, or, or, or but, but that's another quality that I, I think goes hand in hand with what Dave is talking about is happy for the success of others. And it would be nice for Jordan to do that. And yeah. I think Kobe learned to do that. And, you know, you hope that, you know, in this business, we beg, borrow and steal. You know, whether yep. media all the way to a front office or, or anybody that's successful. So uh, I think that's a great quality that LeBron shows hand in hand with the trust of his teammates being happy and putting others in a position to attain success. I, I uh, was teased this uh, to Dave Wall in the text um, about the, before the show that uh, Pat Riley um, was on a stage uh, at the Hall of Fame in, Nace, uh, in Springfield, Massachusetts, after the ceremony in 2014, and Larry Bird was next to him, and then I think Nate Archibald, and there might have been one other person. And the great thing is, is sort of as a, I was a columnist of the Washington Post at the time, they didn't have any security, so I just walked right up on the stage. I'm thinking, hey, you know, I, these guys kind of know my face. And Pat Riley looks at me and he says, 
implies if you say fucking one thing about this, I'll kill you. But now, you know, Pat's not going to do anything to me. I mean, uh, and he doesn't know, you know, I'm not, I'm nobody. I'm, ho I'm hosting a podcast with Bruce Bernstein. Who am I? You know? And so, so at any rate, uh, uh, but this is great. This is a great moment. He's, he's telling the story of the night. <laughs> he's telling the story of the night. Um, he loses LeBron. He realizes LeBron is, and Larry Bird and Lane Archibald are sitting there like they're kind of almost in awe. And he's going, hey, you know, when he gave me the call and they told me he wasn't coming back and he told me, that's it. I fell to my knees. I fell to my knees. And everybody's like dramatic. Oh, yeah. And he goes, but I got up. I got up and I made a call. And the call I made to a player told me he wanted LeBron's spot. And like Bird and Archibald like, this is great. Like Kevin Durant, who bought it? You know, and he goes, Luol Dang. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, and which is, you know, but I love that Pat Riley believed in that moment that Luol Dang was going to, and he goes, and he wanted to guard LeBron when he came to, you know, and, and it was like, he was convinced that, well, he had lost the all-time great. He was going to turn Luol Dang into LeBron James. And it's sort of the, uh, the, 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 part, the part of Pat Rayleigh I love. It doesn't matter who you are. If he took all three of us at a fantasy camp tomorrow, he would find a way to make us win. I feel like that's the whole organization. I look at this team. They didn't have uh, they didn't have a first-team NBA All-Star on that team. Bam Adebayo is going to be nice for many years. Uh, Goran Dragic, Gore Dragic is great, and um, and shoot, who am I forgetting now? Gosh, the, the best. Oh, Jimmy Butler. They traded for Jimmy Butler. I mean, this is a really this is a really nice team, but it didn't it didn't lose championship, and yet Eric Spolstra gets that it gets that that team together. Pat Riley, top down culture. I just I'm blown away by Miami. You know, um, I can speak a little bit to Miami because I was an assistant coach their first year as an expansion franchise. Yes, you were. And it's, it's one of the things where I, I've learned to believe in traditions because there aren't very many advantages of being an expansion franchise. You're going to get your ass kicked almost every night. You know, <laughs> um, you're not going to win for a couple of years, but you get to establish your own traditions at the start. You don't have to break old traditions. You don't have to get everybody out of the old ones. And right from that very first year, the traditions for the Miami Heat, we were going to be the best conditioned team in the NBA. We were going to be tougher than everybody else mentally. We actually were the first team that put in an off-season player performance um, improvement program. Now everybody has it, but we were the first ones. When Pat came on years later, Pat just raised it up a bunch of notches because he had the clout to do that. But that whole franchise from the very beginning that culture has just grown. They've planted seeds in the ground for it. And it's not for everybody. I'm sure you've read articles. You go there, they're gonna expect you to fit in with them, not them fit in for you. And even LeBron, who was there for a couple of years, I think he would tell you he learned a lot there um, just from the way they conduct business and their expectations and their accountability and everything. Well, from Dave, from the outside looking in, I've always had the thoughts that you just confirmed for us in terms of, you know, it's not for everybody. I know when you get there, they weigh you and then they tell you how much you're going to weigh. And I had recruited when I was at Arizona State, Ike Austin. And you remember Ike uh, was with the Jazz, then he got hurt. And I think he got most improved 
uh, when he was right. with the Miami Heat. He got a and, huge contract out of it. Yeah, and he told me the stories where, you know, it's either their way or the highway. And again, a lot of people make rules and they say things and yeah. they don't enforce it. But then working, you know, for Byron and then being in the studio with Worthy and getting to know Magic when I covered the Sparks, I would ask them questions. I would never ask Magic questions about the Sparks. I wanted to know about Pat Riley. Oh, I bet. Because well, I want Riley to know Everything Byron was telling me was true, right? You know, because everyone, the fish always hits this much. Yeah. But I'd love to hear any stories you got, Dave, because they'll, they'll beat the heck out of mine. <laughs> Pat, Pat was really smart, though. Kareem was never overweight when he weighed in. There was never, he knew oh, right. were never <laughs> even if he was, right? I love it. Weight, so. <laughs> right, yeah, Dave, I love I like that because you know, when you get on the bus, when the head coach gets on the bus, that's when the bus leaves. So, one time I won't even mention the player's name, but we needed him and we were in San Antonio and he was late and I kept texting him. So, all of a sudden, I looked at Byron, I said, Oh. I forgot the scouting disc up in my room. So it's, and I had it right in my bag. You know, it's just one of those things you have to do because, you know, we were going to lose by 20 anyway. If we didn't have this player, we would have lost by 40. Uh, so, so I went right to his room, Mike, and, and, uh, and I woke him up and I said, let's go and made sure he got on the bus. And then I said, man, I couldn't find the disc. You know, Pat had a rule that only the players and staff were on the one bus. And he never violated. And we're 1985. We've just gotten beat in the Boston Massacre game a, a couple nights before, like 148 to 114. Oh, we were hoping to win. And so we're getting on the bus. And Kareem was awful that first game. He looked about 100 years old. And Kareem's dad had come up from New York City. And as we're getting on the bus, Kareem goes up to Pat and said, Could my dad ride on the bus? And Pat had never allowed anything. Pat looks at Kareem and realized, and this is where great coaches just make the rules up when they need to. He said, yeah, sure. So for whatever reason that wow. Kareem needed his dad on the bus, Pat understood it. And Kareem's dad rode, him on the, rode with him on the bus. And we win that game. We go on to win in six, six games in the Boston Garden. But Kareem had, I think, like 30-something and 18 rebounds. And he made Kevin McHale and Parrish look like two yeah. kids that had just gotten out on the court. And in that series, there were something like seven Hall of Famers eventually playing in that series between the two teams. But even the players knew something was up because they saw Kareem's dad come on the bus and was like, oh, Pat let his dad on the bus. Oh, we got to win tonight or something, you know. So Pat was terrific at those, like all great coaches, uh, decisions that can That's such a great things. anecdote. I, you know, I was going to come out with two of my anecdotes where that would show you, you know, on one hand, what an asshole Riley is, but but – <laughs> it would also translate into why he is who he is and people respect him so much. I want to like the hard part that that little soft part of him every now and then comes out when he knows it's going to help. I'm going to uh, the one I remember. Well, my own personal one. I'll, I'll give this up. I'm in therapy in New York. I'm covering the NBA for the New York Times. So I'm, I'm talking to my therapist and I'm like trying to get a hold of Riley all day for something. And 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 all of a sudden his number comes up and it's like if you if Pat Riley called you got to take it and I said look I got to take this her name was Barbara I said Barbara I got to take this and so I'm in New York and I go Pat hi this is crazy but I'm I'm in a therapy appointment he goes oh my God well that's more important than me call me back and I'm like Pat Riley's gonna have me call like he never does that and then I think I did call him back. And he had Tim Donovan call me back and said, never call Pat back on his own phone. <laughs> he, he calls you, okay? Oh, okay. All right. All right, Tim. And um, 
The other one I'll share is after one of those brutal Heat Knicks series, game seven, uh, the Heat lose it. It's just to get Riley sitting here. It looks like, you know, uh, Russell Crowe in the gladiator after he gets stabbed at the end. He's like about to, you know, just, and he's just miserable. And he goes, you know, I'm going to remember this because when, when, when we win it all, this is going to, it's going to even make the sweet. I'm like, this guy's a masochist. And he's like, and he's given this day after press conference that, and he's answered every question and everybody's like, okay, wow. Okay. We're going to let him go. And then does anybody know Barry Jackson from the Herald, uh, Miami Herald? Great guy, great guy, but kind of a, you know, a, 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 like typical reporter. And he's like, goes, uh, Pat, one more question, please. And everybody's like, oh, no, Barry, you're going to get killed. And he goes, are you going to bring Dan Marley back? And I'm like, oh, no, why would he even? This is a day to ask him about Dan Marley. Riley looks around the room and you think, oh, he's going to get you him out. And he goes, Barry, what are you having for dinner tonight? And he's like, I, I don't know, chicken? And, and Pat Riley gets off the days, walks down the thing, puts his arm around Barry, and he goes, well, as sure as you're having chicken tonight, I'm bringing back Dan Marley. <laughs> and it was like, Barry Jackson thought it was, I thought it was like, oh, it's such a great moment. I'll give, you, I'll give you one story that I think Dave will appreciate too, is, um, so I'm with Pat as his assistant. It's the Showtime era. Uh, we've got a terrific team. And back then you practiced every day. There was no rest recovery. Nobody knew what rest and recovery was. Um, and Pat would diagram a two hour practice every day, every minute accounted for. And so we're out there and even our second team was good. We had Wilkes and McAdoo and Cooper, a whole bunch of guys. We have one of the greatest practices I've ever seen in my life for an hour and 55 minutes. I mean, scrimmaging, going back and forth, any drill we did, everything. I mean, guys are diving on the floor for balls. It's crazy. And then we, we kind of run out of gas the last five minutes, okay? So Pat and I get upstairs and I go, Pat, that was just, it was unbelievable, that practice. I, man, that, 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 I'm going on and on. He's just sitting there at his desk and he's kind of looking down. And he goes, they just didn't bring it tonight. <laughs> I, I look at him, I go, what are you talking about? You're crazy. And he goes, Dave. It's like Herb Brooks and Miracle. Yeah, but this was the point. And he made a great point. It was a great teaching point for me as a coach. He said, Dave, the most important part of the practice was the last five minutes, because those are the last five minutes in the fourth quarter of the seventh game in the NBA finals, and you can't give in. You got to fight through those things. You got to push through them. You mentally cannot let your body give in to those things. And that's why, that, and he explained that to the team the next day, and the team kind of understood what he was talking about. But I hadn't thought of it that way. I just thought, hey, we got an hour and 55 minutes. Great practice. As a coach, you're happy. Now, Pat wanted more than that because he was looking to accomplish more than that. Great stuff. Great stuff. Uh, let's go to just the league in general. I, one, I just thought I, I was one of those doubters from the beginning. Not that they shouldn't have the NBA at all, but I just didn't think it would matter with everything going on in the world. And I thought they would be so tone deaf in that bubble. And, of course, Adam Silver, smart as can be, gets with the Players Association, gets with all the important players and says, look, if, this, if you think that this country is burning around you and, there, and we really have to look at the divide between law enforcement and the black community in this country, let's do some messaging behind it. There's basically the way many of them play because many of them didn't even want to play. Um, and so now this happens, and not only do they – Again, like they're not going to do it next season, and I'm sure some people were turned off by it. But 
but the bottom line is not only do they get their players to buy in on this whole notion of if you guys come along with us, we're going to, we're going to be as progressive as we always have and really, and really highlight what's going on out there. Um, they, 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 they don't have a single infection in the bubble. There's 6,500 people, employees, uh, hotel workers, uh, TNT, ESPN, players, organizations, owners, coaches, they don't have a single, you know, infection. They don't have an outbreak. They don't have a, I mean, it just, to me, that part of it is, wow, what a credit to the league and everything. I mean, it's almost, if I, if I was Mark Emmert of the NCAA, I would put a down payment on the bubble just for March Madness, just in case. Well, I think one of the things that, um, and, and Adam is so good at this, uh, I think this time the league, they know what they don't know. They didn't know how to do this. There, there was no, hey, we'll get it, we'll figure it out, we'll put everybody in someplace and we'll just figure it out as we go. They talked to health professionals, they talked to scientists, they looked for data, they looked up every possible way to test, they looked where can we put this that we can kind of really hold people inside. And they, they didn't just kind of, you know, slough off on anything. And I, and I think it was a great example of when you really get people together and you give them free reign to talk about um, how you protect people, how you do this, how you do that. And you, you brought in everybody. You brought in the Players Association. You brought in the health people, the doctors. You gave the players a voice. What are you concerned about? Can you, how can we make the bubble better and all this? I think the outcome of that was all due to that research the constant questioning of things until they finally could put together uh, a protocol that everybody agreed was probably the best way that they could protect everybody and still finish out a season. And like you said, there were some people that probably still didn't like it, but I think the vast majority of players felt safe there. I, I think they found ways to, to make it tolerable for them, even if they didn't like it. And I thought it was a great example of, hey, we've got information out there, whether it's the NBA or another sports league or just the country in general. Don't ignore the information that's factual because facts really do matter. I've always thought that loyalty is a two-way street, guys. And when I, the reason I bring that up is I think, Mike, this decision was made a couple years ago. And what I mean by that is, remember, Adam Silver gets the job, Donald Sterling with the Clippers. Oh, that yeah, that's a great point. And, and all of a sudden, he does the right thing. And, you know, there were a lot of people that didn't know what was going to come in picture. You know, I don't know if he was on the job a day or if he was on the job six months. I, I don't quite remember, but he was fairly new to that position. And he bans Donald Sterling. Well, I think that came into play because that's when I think the buy-in from the players came. And I think yeah. there was difference even though you hear magic and you hear bird you know uh, uh even jordan you know sterling said uh, not sterling um uh the, the the commissioner made this league right you know before he passed away now silver comes in and there's a there's a buy-in so i think when they got together these players have trusted him from day one since he took over and i think that played a lot into them because remember this guys the lakers and the clippers I mean, I wasn't there, but those were two teams this year that wanted to leave and stop playing when, yeah. when it came a couple weeks before. I mean, uh, again, like I said, I can only go with some of the players that I've talked to that confirmed that with me, but they were like, let's go home, let's stop playing. And I think Adam Silver mm -hmm. came into play and, you know, the guys that believe in him and the heavy hitters believe in him, you know, and so when you have the LeBrons, the Chris Pauls and 
and the other members that, that buy in. I thought that really helped in doing it. But one, one thing's for sure, Mike, how do you not get one COVID, you know? Oh, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, I don't, I mean, whoever was doing the monitoring, the testing, what was it they said tonight on television, um, uh, Anthony Davis's father quarantined for 30 days or something just to see that game? Uh, you know, I, I, I look Adam Silver for president in 2024. I think we all agree that that's how it's going to go. And maybe we'll all get jobs on his staff. I'll be a speechwriter. You guys will be like sports czars yeah. and uh, actually put the put a put a basketball court where it's supposed to be back at the White House. And we'll get going. Um, I oh yeah, I just I, I think yeah, it's very impressive the whole thing. Where do we go? I guess the draft is in November. Um, or is it in November or later this month? I think they said it was going to be November 18th. Somewhere yeah, November 18th. Yeah. So no, November 18th, the draft. They're talking about uh, starting the season in January. I mean, I'm already kind of, you know, looking around going, wow, it, LeBron is the first NBA Mr. October. <laughs> like, what a weird, what a weird, what a weird place we're in right now. Do, when do fans come back, do you think? Uh, and how do you really pull, you know, if, if, if people like Bill Gates is, are um, involved in, the, in trying to get a vaccine for the rest of the society, and he's saying that it probably won't readily be available until next summer, and then the, most of America won't have it until, you know, 2022, that to me is scary in a way. And I, like, what do you do? I mean, I know the NBA is just a small potatoes thing in the, in the grand scheme of the world, but if you're, if, if you're the league, I, I don't know. I don't know how you bring fans back right away. Well, I don't, I don't think they know those answers yet. And, yeah. and I think this will they'll, they'll do the same thing they did before because um, they don't want to start the season unless they can bring some fans back into the building because they can't do a bubble for an entire season. So now you have to get creative. You have to do your investigations. All right. So now we really would like to have a full season. But what if we can't have fans? We, we don't want to abandon the whole season. Are there mini bubbles? You go two weeks, you have a bubble, and then you're out for a, uh, a week and a half. Eastern Conference, uh, yeah. or the, the divisional bubbles. Yeah, it, 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 it's going to be a lot of ideas that are going to be crazy and tossed around. And I sh I'm sure right now they're celebrating tonight and they're going to they're enjoy tonight. And then they'll start again trying to figure it out. But just think about this, too. What if college basketball gets canceled this year? So now let's say you're the first team that has the first uh, yeah, round pick. Yeah, it's a very good possibility. You have the first round pick, Mike, in next year's draft, <laughs> and the season gets canceled. And oh, boy. Can't I, I would, games. <laughs> I mean, there's I mean, so that many nowadays, bones. It's crazy. Well, nowadays, like, uh, I'm sure John Calipari is recruiting off sonograms. So you take someone young. You take someone very young. <laughs> take a friend. Take whoever Calipari brings in as a freshman. I don't care if he plays or not. He's gonna. He's gonna be an NBA player. <laughs> I mean, if we thought this year was a challenge to play seven or eight regular season games and then the four rounds of the playoffs, I don't know how big a challenge it is to do eighty-two games oh. and then four rounds of the playoffs. I mean, it's geometric compared to what this one was. So it's going to be really interesting what Adam and and the league and the players' association try to come up with.
And I don't think they're going to bring fans back until there's a vaccine. I just, there's no way I, I get football. You can be outside. And, I mean, we all watch football now and you, you know, you're watching games today and you're seeing somebody here, somebody there, and it, it just looks so odd. But um, I, I, my own personal belief, yeah. I think you make a choice as a person. If you want to stay home, if you want to stay quarantined, I believe in wearing a mask because I'm not wearing the mask for what I believe in. I'm wearing the mask to protect you two in case I have yeah. something. But to bring people into an arena with all the things that you touch, you know, and uh, I, I just don't know how they're going to do it. Yeah. Um, but if anybody has the resources, the NBA and all the owners and, you know, all that money to be able to try and figure it out. But I don't think they come back with fans in January. I think Q, I think Mark Cuban. Go ahead, Dave Wall. I, I cut you off. No, I was just going to say, you know, maybe we'll see some games on outdoor courts. You know, they'll oh, old school. The we'll down the beach, they'll lay down a court on the beach. You no, know, we'll yeah. play games outdoors. My favorite <laughs> memory. We'll have some games. <laughs> favorite memory from my adolescence. Um, uh, I'm 15 years old. I've, I've got a rickshaw driving job, pedicab driving job in, in Hawaii on Waikiki Beach. And uh, who walks out but Irvin Johnson? And he, I'm like 15. He had just turned 19 or 20. It was two weeks before his first Lakers training camp. And I'm like, hey, Magic, you want to ride? And and he and his girlfriend look back and they go, I don't know, well, later I go, free! <laughs> and literally that turned into me being his personal caddy for a week. I would just wait on the wait on the corner of the Hilton Hawaiian Village every day. And the last day, I talked him into playing outdoor basketball with me and my friends uh, behind the Honolulu Zoo at some old fire station. And uh, we were leaving, like, guys scrambled up to put a net on, one of my friends, Joe Dabrowski, and, like, literally – I, I, and nobody thought I actually knew magic, even my friends. And so when they're all playing, I, pu I pull up with my pedicab and I could still see their faces. The ball just rolls to the chain link fence and they just, their jaws hit the floor. And he plays three on three with us for an hour. So, so I see him years later, you know, I'm at Madison Square Garden cover the Knicks. And I'm like, oh, you probably don't, because that was you. And I go, yeah. And I go, he goes, you know, that was, he goes, that was the last time he goes, I only played outdoor basketball one other time ever. It was in Maui with Kadeem Hardison or some the comedian, and these two other guys, because that was the last time I played outside. And I'm like, really? He goes, yeah, I had to save my knees. And so, uh, so I like, I'm sure the players association would like, you know, they, you know, they would go crazy over that. Michelle Roberts would just, you know, you can't put these guys on asphalt. That's what they, that's what they grew up on to get this money. <laughs> hey Dave, if they do that, let you and I invest in knee pads. We'll come yeah, up with exactly. <laughs> That'd be great. Or I could see Mark Cuban guys. I could see him like, if there's no fans coming back, basically building a console at home where you not only can bet um, from your console, but you can sort of sh shout at coaches, sh sh you know, shout profanities into the arena at the actual bench and everything that'll that'll translate um, if you buy this chair. Well, didn't they have a Philadelphia Eagle guy during the production boo boo the quarterback? Oh, that's the best. That's the best. <laughs> like like during a during during a fan, you know, during a, a game with no fans, they still had the PA guy boo the Eagles. It was great. But um, it's gonna it's gonna be an incredible challenge for them as well as yeah. other sports. But coming off the success they had, how do you equal that or surpass yeah. now with a longer season because I'm, I'm sure they don't want to you know cancel a season or only play half a season so it's going to be interesting how they do it all right you guys have been great couple lightning round before i let you go um everybody thought this was going to be uh a, a, or 
the talk was LA is might be a Clippers town now. Well, of course, uh, Paul, Paul George and, um, Oh God bless him. Ka- Kawhi Leonard have uh, joined the squad and I thought they were as good as anybody until, uh, shoot, I don't know, Denver unleashed <clears throat> Nik- Nik- Nikola Jokic on us and, and Jamal Murray. And all of a sudden it changed. Uh, you know, Doc has to walk the plank. What happens with the Clippers now? Well, I think there's an interesting stat, and not that history always repeats, and I might be off by a team or two, uh, but in the last 50 years, only four teams have won a title in the year that they added one or more elite players. Um, I'm going to give them to you right now. Okay. Actually, I can't. I was just joking. (laughs) Go ahead. I I think on Obigo and Kareem. That's 70-71, Big O and Kareem. Um, Doc won it in 2008 with the Celtics in the greatest um, change in wins. Um, I honestly forget the last two teams. I think Kawhi, obviously, would be the one in uh, Toronto. Toronto. Yeah, okay. The fourth one I forget. But most of those teams, like even when um, Shaq joined Wade in Miami, didn't win it their first year. LeBron and and Bosh didn't win it their first year with Wade. Most of those teams that added a guy or two, they won it in year two. Because they got used think, to it. And they, uh, that, that's uh, exactly, yeah. yeah the roles kind of get figured out. The, all, the, all the chemistry gets better. The sting of losing still is there. So most of those teams had another year together and won it in year two. And I'm thinking for the Clippers, they're hoping they don't have the interruptions and the deaths and all the other stuff. And whatever coach they do decide to hire is a quality coach who can lead them to that title. Well, while I covered the Lakers, the Clippers had their number. And, and, you know, quite frankly, it was more exciting to go to a Clipper game than it really was a Laker game. Well, you and, had Lob City. Yeah. And, and it was just, there was just an excitement. You know, there, was, there yeah. was transition. It was getting up and down. And then Balmer comes and he adds on the baseline. He adds excitement. I mean, it was just fun watching him because yeah. every night it was the same old thing with the Lakers. You know, they, they just couldn't, they couldn't close games. They couldn't finish. And yeah. obviously this is before LeBron. Um, but I thought there was an excitement. And right now, you know, I've been here since 95, 96 in L.A. And I can say this. I think that the Clippers are in the best position they've ever been in terms of rosters, in terms of front office personnel. I, I think Balmers has done a lot like Dr. Buss in the sense he's hired people. He lets them do the job. I think Lawrence Frank is outstanding. You know, I, I don't know, Doc. We're, we're acquaintances through coaching and, and seeing each other in town. But, I mean, he's a championship-level coach. And like you alluded to, Mike, you know, somebody has to walk the plank. And right. it's usually the coach. You don't get rid of your stars or a bunch of players. So I think the Clippers are in a position uh, to really do some damage and, you know, Speaking with Dave in terms of history, they're, they're going to be very good. I was kind of hoping that they were going to meet in, in the Western Conference Finals mm-hmm. because I thought it would settle something, even though with the asterisk is there. Uh, but, but I think they're in great shape and they're in great hands. And lastly, we're in an era of player empowerment now that we've never been. And I think a lot of people have looked at LeBron James's titles and said, wait a minute, uh, this is like the guy at the YMCA that, that – chooses his friends to keep the court all day and make sure that nobody else plays. And, you know, Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade join him. And then all of a sudden Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love end up in Cleveland. And of course, 
Um, and of course, he gets Anthony Davis and uh, like nice role players like Contavious uh, Caldwell Pope to join him in Los Angeles. Um, is should he be knocked for that at all, or or is this just what the league has? And LeBron James has taken advantage of a situation in which players have this kind of power now. Well, you know, the, the power has shifted, but teams were trying to do this even before the players had the power. They were trying to trade or, or sign or get a free agent when they could to put two or three elite players together and then build a, a bench or a complementary group of players um, along with them. Uh, the power has just shifted where the players have taken ownership of some of that because a lot of the players have known each other since, you know, AAU ball. Um, years ago, players didn't, you know, a long time ago, players didn't have that. They didn't have an AAU where they've known each other or played on the same team since they were 10 or 12 years old. So I think they're far more comfortable with the power and the, the money that they command to chart their own futures in their mind. They don't want to leave it up to somebody else. And I think you're going to continue to see that as we move forward. Yeah. Dave brought up three key letters. AAU, and that's what I think it is. It's, it's AAU basketball, and especially in the bubble, you see them you know, getting off the bus and coming in in T-shirts and shorts, and even though they had the mask, but this is AAU basketball. You're trying to get the, the best players, and, and I don't think it's wrong. You know, and there's, there's a lot of guys that come on, old school guys that say, nope, if you want to win, you're going to come to my place and you're going to win. A lot of them haven't won. You know, the name of the game is to win. And as, as even as parents, we, we're going to try and put our kids in a position to succeed. You know, look at that lady from the TV show that just went to jail for a couple of weeks. She paid $500,000. You know, was it Aunt Jessie or, or I forget her name? Hey, who or, is this? Am, am, am I culturally bereft here? I've got three small children. I'm kind of still in Bubble Guppy's world. But, but what did I miss here? Help me out. Well, it was I'm a very logland here on the West Coast where this guy was saying, so let's say your daughter is a rower or a water polo player and we'll get them to get an in through the admission. Oh, oh yeah. We, oh, yeah. We were. I, I covered that story out here because Georgetown Tennis, um, the coach was a, a crooked. Yeah. And well, he essentially, you know, he, he let some people on that shouldn't have you know, been on getting division one tennis scholarships. Yeah. And it actually turned out to be someone's aunt, Aunt Becky. It was Aunt Becky from Full House. Oh, Aunt Ben, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Lori, Lori Laughlin. And Lori Laughlin. So, I mean, they donate, you know, usually if you want to get your kid in, you got to build a building or you got to put a wing on the hospital. They went the cheap route, 500000 you know, they paid this guy and, and you get caught, but that's trying to get your kid to be successful. So, you know what, if LeBron can get, that's, that's college recruiting. That's Calipari. That's, yeah. you know, I mean, some of the best players I recruited in high school were the reason I got the next best player because yeah. they, they met, you know, at the Memorial day or in, in Vegas in July. So no, I give them all the credit. And I think there's been a change in coaching staffs, Dave, you know, remember when you were, you were thought never to be a recruiter, you had to be an X and O guy to go to the NBA to get a bench. You know, oh Yeah. And, Really, it surprised a lot of people. You know, I was almost 20 years as a college assistant, and everyone knew me as a recruiter. And then all of a sudden, Byron Scott hires me, you know, to, to work with the guards and, and to be an X and O guy. So, well, well Dave, you, Dave Miller, you were the bag man at that point. You were, like, giving the players money and bringing them ahead. So, <laughs> you know what the problem is? And Dave, did you coach Scalabrini in Boston? Um, yes. 
Uh, he was there, Brian, yes. Yeah, so, so I didn't have anyone that was good enough to pay. And then, you know, if, if I, if, you know it was an investment. And then if I would have paid Scalabrini, he was so cheap, he would have never paid me back. You know, the guys that buy players, you get something on the back end. So I never had good enough players. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, yeah. that, that's my point. It's, it's an AAU mentality. If you can get guys to come, it's all about winning. And LeBron yeah. did a great job of it. I think I was the old curmudgeon for years where I said, you know, I used to write all these stories to the New York Times about like Grant Hill would talk about the cattle calls and how they destroyed the importance of a high school coach's influence in a player's life. And, and that when you won a state championship and I, it was like the biggest deal of all time. Well, now, you, you know, it's nice, but if you can't ball with the guys in Vegas during the summer, you're nobody in basketball. So I think it's just the time, you know, shoot, my young son wants to play now, and I just have to accept where we are and what we're doing. Guys, this has been great. I really appreciate you staying up late with me. Um, I know um, people of our age usually go to bed about 7.30. The fact that we're up this late is incredible. And, um, and, and the best thing about it is, is neither one of you have infected me. I appreciate you wearing your masks during the program the whole time, uh, even though we're Zooming. It's, it's, it's incredible. And, well, Mike, uh, it's, it's 11.38 at your time. Dave and I are going to go down to the beach and get a burger and a beer. Oh, jeez. Yeah, it's almost Early. light still out there. Yeah, I just had my mask over the microphone. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, this is great. Oh, I, you know, before we go, I think it's just, um, I think I need to get, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, congratulations, Jeannie Buss, the first female um, owner, uh, principal owner of an NBA team to win a title. And, and what a year to do it in which they lose an all-time great and uh, someone that was very close to her and Kobe Bryant. I can't say enough about her. She really, she, she, she's really gone through a lot and, um, and to come out on top and everything that's happened, well, it's good for her. So. Yeah, I agree. That was dope. It's time to wrap things up for this week. Thank you very much to our guests, Dave Wall and Dave Miller. Thanks also to my producer, Bruce Bernstein, as well as our talented editor, Tom Phillip. Please listen to all of our Pure Hoops media shows. Full Court Press with John Fanta comes your way each Tuesday with the best college basketball guests anywhere. Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Otto Strong and Aaron Berlin is here each Wednesday. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt and King McClure drop in every Thursday. And BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman are here every Friday with the Pure Hoops podcast. And I'm back each Monday with the Mike Wise Show. Please listen, review us, and leave a five-star rating. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Finally, being in Washington, D.C., I know more than anyone, COVID-19 is still tearing through this country. So please wear your mask, wash your hands, and stay at least six feet away from others. And please treat everyone around you, even strangers, even people from the other political parties, as friends and be considerate. And don't forget to keep our medical professionals in your thoughts. Also, we all need to continue working for social justice as we strive for a more just and inclusive society. So please do your part and don't forget to vote. Till next week, aloha. The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.